Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com. Instead of another New Year's resolution, why not truly kickstart your new year and challenge yourself to learn something new with a free 10-day trial to lynda.com? lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world and has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, and business, as well as software training like Excel, WordPress, Yay, and Photoshop. All of their courses are taught by experts, and new courses are added each week to the site. So, whether you want to set new financial goals, find that work-life balance thing, invest in a new hobby, ask your boss for a raise, I'm going after that one, find a new job, or improve upon your current job skills in 2015, lynda.com has something for you and everyone. But you don't have to take my word for it. You can sign up for a free 10-day trial by visiting lynda.com forward slash WWII. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com forward slash WWII. And with that, you'll get unlimited access to every course on lynda.com. And you can view the tutorials on your tablet or your iPhone and Android mobile devices. And of course, as they add new courses each week, you'll get access to those as well. And when you do sign up, here are some courses and videos you might want to try. Getting Things Done by David Allen. This best-selling author shares his tips for being more productive, something we could all use in 2015. There's also Small Business Secrets, Gamification of Learning. I'm looking forward to that one. And Business Writing Fundamentals. Now, me personally, some of the other ones I'm going to be checking out are their audio ones, always trying to take the podcast to the next level, as well as the web production and designing, so I don't have to bug my web tech guy at 2 o'clock in the morning in Scotland. Sorry about that, mate. So, start the new year off right, do something good for yourself in 2015, and sign up for a free 10-day trial to lynda.com. Please go to lynda.com forward slash WWII. Go ahead. I challenge you to learn something new in 2015. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 118, Operation Brevity, Iraq, and Crete. Last time, Raoul had halted his North African advance around Solemn, but had been forcibly checked by the British Commonwealth forces at Tobruk. He blamed others for the latter, but the bottom line was he wouldn't be advancing anymore anytime soon. Yet the British, to match him, 
mistake for mistake, believed that the desert fox was barely holding on to what he had, which made him a perfect target for a counterattack. The truth was, Rama wasn't that weak, just too weak to keep pushing on while enduring the losses that followed any advance. But Wavell and Churchill were about to find this out for themselves. So, Wavell, the Prime Minister, and General Beresford Pierce, who was now in command of this latest version of the Western Desert Force, waited for Convoy Tiger to land, which it did on May 12th, so its cargo of tanks and planes could be spewed forth and readied for combat. But that readying would take longer than any one of them thought possible. While the ships were being offloaded, Wavell, feeling Churchill looking over his shoulder, decided he was now safe to use what armor he had in an attempt to push back the Axis forces and relieve Tobruk. It was to be called Operation Brevity, and considering the outcome, the British command should have come up with a more robust title. Yet it's worth noting that this was not originally Wavell's next move. That was to be Operation Battleaxe, which was to be powered by Churchill's Tiger Cubs. But upon intercepting General Paulus's report back to Berlin about Rommel's current situation, Wavell conceived of hitting Rommel now, rocking him back on his heels, and then finishing him off with Battleaxe. It was an impressive plan, on paper. Back to brevity. The idea was for General Gott, who was put in charge, to hit the Axis forces near Solemn and push them back, hopefully to the west of Tobruk, and thus relieve the siege there, as ordained by Paulus in Berlin. And this was Gott's plan. Starting furthest south, or desert side, and working our way to the coast, the 7th Armor Brigade, made up of only two squadrons, meaning 29 cruiser tanks, along with three columns of its support group, would head northwest, about 19 miles inland, cross the wire frontier separating the two sides, just to the south of Fort Campuzo, and make their way toward Si Aziz, itself about 10 miles inland from Bardia. The idea was for the 7th Armored to destroy or chase away all Axis forces they came across, preferably the former. In essence, the 7th Armor would act like a shield to allow the other forces to hit their targets without worrying about reinforcements raining down on them from the north. Next, with its left flank thus protected, the 22nd Guards Brigade, comprised of the 4th Royal Tank Regiment, with its 24 infantry, or Matilda tanks, was to head just south of the escarpment between themselves and the coast, capture their side of the all-important Halfaya Pass, the only drivable passage over the escarpment on their side of Solemn for a long ways, while other parts of the 22nd Guards would continue on, staying just south of the escarpment, cross the frontier wire just above Fort Campuzo, capture the fort, and then come up behind Solemn, hopefully trapping all Axis forces there before they could escape to the north or west. And throwing in some wishful thinking, something military men seem prone to do, if all went well, then to send another part of the 22nd Guards further north to check any German armor coming to relieve Campuzo. 
If you're starting to get the feeling that this was asking way too much of too little a force, yeah, the British were about to as well. Just to give a clear picture of the scarcity of resources to hand, the 22nd Guards Brigade would be using the transport vehicles of the 4th Indian Division, which itself was just returning from East Africa, having ended the war in Eritrea. All of the Guards' transports were in Greece, and they would not be coming back. And lastly, along the coast, above the escarpment, the 2nd Rifle Brigade, along with the 8th Field Regiment, was to engage the enemy at Solomon long enough for the tanks of the 22nd Guards to come up behind them. But what's more, these motorized infantry units were also to capture their end of the Halfaya Pass and clean up any soldiers trying to escape Solomon to the east or south, again trying to do a lot with relatively little. This three-pronged attack got underway on May 15th with hurricanes from 274 Squadron providing a, hopefully, protective umbrella. And things started out well enough, with tanks from the 22nd Guards taking their end of the Hellfire Pass. Yet they lost seven tanks in accomplishing this, which did not bode well for their next phase, Fort Campuzo. And on the way to that fort, the infantry and tank units would become separated, Communication and coordination were not taking place. Still, the tanks reached Campuzo and chased away its owners. Yet two more tanks had been lost, which meant no force would be sent north to either try for Bardia or, at the very least, set up a protective flank to the north. Along the coast, things were not going so well. The 2nd Rifle Brigade was unable to take their end of Helfaya Pass, despite being supported by eight Blennons of No. 14 Squadron. For now, their progress was checked. Furthest inland, the 7th Armor Brigade was doing well against what enemy units it ran into, pushing all before them back to their side of the frontier wire. Of course, what was before them was just a covering force to give Rommel an idea of what was coming his way and when they would be coming close enough for him to do something about them. They had been ordered to fall back. Now, Rommel had known something was coming, yet he believed it was nothing more than an attempt to help Tobruk. But reading British radio intercepts, which was incredibly easy, almost to the point of treason, he soon found out it was to be much more, and thus prepared. First, he strengthened that part of his siege onto Brooks' eastern side. It now served the dual purpose of keeping those Commonwealth forces in, as well as making sure God's men stayed out. Next, he put Colonel Herf on alert. He was stationed with his panzers just to the south of Bardia and north of Fort Campuzo and Solom. And when he came south to the east of Campuzo, he not only avoided the 7th Armor Brigade, but ran into the infantry elements of the 22nd Guards, which had become separated from their tanks, and thus suffered heavy casualties. Realizing he had not taken out any enemy tanks, Herf considered that force more or less to be intact, and prepared that evening to retreat north under darkness. He did not know that nine British tanks were already out of action, 
and that the 22nd Guards were being asked to do too much. But Rommel guessed something along these lines must be true and ordered Herf to remain in place. He was sending a battalion of panzers from the 5th Panzer Regiment to hit and check the 7th Armored further inland, which would allow Herf to focus unharmed on the tanks near Campuzo. In fact, the panzers of the 5th were already en route and should arrive by morning. If Rommel was going to win this clash, it would be at Fort Campuzo. That's because his men holding the coast side entrance of the Halfaya Pass had finally given in to constant pressure and surrendered. 124 of his men were taken in. As for the 7th Armor Brigade on the far left British flank, they had pushed away the screening force and made it to the area of Sidi Aziz, but weren't sure what to do next. Not that it mattered, because daylight was fading fast. Should they turn south and help with Fort Campuzo, or should they head northeast to Bardia, as it was clear the 22nd Guards would not be? But the decision was about to be made for them. General Gott, looking at his maps and all the markers showing the locations of his troops, could clearly see that elements of the 22nd Guards furthest to the north were exposed. If the Germans under Herf, not that Gott knew his name, hit them, there would be heavy British casualties. In fact, Herf already had, and the unacceptable casualties had resulted. And again, if the guards' tanks were attacked without infantry support, they would suffer as well, as the panzers were sure to have manned support. With this in mind, Gott radioed back to Western Desert Force, i.e. Beresford Pierce, and said as much at 9 p.m. He also added that if this did happen, he would order a general retreat back to the Halfaya Pass, holding at least that. The 7th Armored would cover the retreating units. But however it happened, the news about the mangled infantry of the 22nd Guards never got back to Gott. What's more, Gott's message to Beresford Pierce was also delayed. An inexcusable offense, to be sure. But it meant that Beresford Pierce's reply did not come back until 2.45 a.m. of May 16th. Gott's superior stated that he would assess the situation in the morning by sending out air patrols during first light. Only then would a order of the day be sent out. Not that this reply mattered, because just before 2 a.m., Gott put his withdrawal plan into motion. The 22nd Guards, which had cleared out enemy forces near the frontier wire and had captured Campuzo, started falling back to the pass, while the 7th Armor Brigade hovered around Sidi Aziz, about 10 miles northwest of the fort, to cover their retreat. Around 3 a.m., the 1st of the 5th Panzer Reinforcements, the 1st Battalion of the 8th Regiment, arrived on their side of Sidi Aziz. Yet in their dash to the fight, they had used up their fuel. Perhaps Rommel was hoping just their presence would scare away the British tanks. So they waited, as fuel trucks were sent to find them. But the panzers would not be refueled until 5 p.m., which saved 7th Armour's bacon, because Herf, not willing to wait any longer, started his advance south early in the afternoon. The 7th gave a good account of themselves, actually losing more tanks to 
technical failures, rather than enemy fire. And only after the sun set did the British armor head back the way they had come, stopping just behind and to the south of the Halfaya Pass. Herf had come forward, retook Campuzo, and was about to move on from there, but was ordered by Rommel to stop along the original frontier wire and rebuild their defenses. Besides the pass changing hands, brevity was awash, of course not counting the now-dead or wounded men and destroyed equipment. Yet in terms of the coming Operation Battle Axe, the real offensive, from the point of view of Wavell and Churchill, the stage was now set. The Halfaya Pass was taken, which would allow Solemn to be directly attacked again, as well as Campuzo. The British armor was ordered to the edge of Allied territory to allow, once again, the saving grace that would be battle-axe to start as far west as possible. Yet, looked at from the Axe's point of view, all they had lost was the pass, had lost fewer men, really. It was those 124 prisoners of war from the pass that gave this category to the British, had also lost fewer tanks and had more to begin with, And, and this was their ace, they still had that carrot to hopefully continue to beat the British with their armored stick to Brook. Epilogue. Colonel Herf, concerned about what Rommel thought about him during the short battle, attempted to raise his stock with his commander by amassing the tanks that had come from Tobruk but had run out of gas and attacked and retook the Halfaya Pass just ten days after Operation Brevity was concluded. Rommel was duly impressed, but he knew the British would be back. He had received reports about the Tiger Convoy and that it was recently offloaded its goods at Alexandria and guessed that tanks would soon be coming his way. So a fortified line was began from the coast at the pass and then ran more or less due west and then turned to run northwest. Its southern point was about five miles south of Campuzo, while its western end came just even with that fort. But Operation Battleaxe, the decisive British action, so planned as to determine the war of the desert, was based on two false premises. First, the British did not learn of, during brevity, Rommel's latest idea, of burying his tank-killing 88s so deep into the ground that their barrels were barely visible. And second, Gott walked away from brevity and reported that the Germans seemed to shy away from pitting their panzers against British tanks. That was true, but not out of fear or even respect. Rommel knew better than most that the fastest way to use up your tanks, even in victory, was to have them clash with enemy tanks. Better to use his 88s or other anti-tank weapons. So, when battle acts commenced, the British believed that the German tanks would be reticent in attacking their armor. They were wrong. Iraq. Last time, Rashid Ali had taken over the government of Iraq and had launched an attack on the RAF training airbase at Habaniya along the Euphrates west of Baghdad, which itself was along the Tigris. When he realized he was being tricked, as the British brought in more Commonwealth forces of the 10th Indian Division, 
Churchill had asked Wavell and Auchinleck, C&C of India, what forces they could give to the cause. Auchinleck had an answer, most pleasing to the Prime Minister, whereas Wavell's refusal to give him anything liked him not. One can just imagine a feather falling from Wavell's command cap. It will also be remembered that the British had decided to strike first, knowing what was coming, and an air campaign was launched against the threatening Iraqi forces on the nearby plateau on the morning of May 2nd. This went on for four days. Then elements of the 1st King's Own Royal Regiment, just recently flown into Habania, scouted the close-by Iraqi force, only to find that they had deserted the plateau the night before. But they had not retreated, as in removing themselves from the war. Instead, part of the Iraqi force had gone eastward to set up a roadblock to Baghdad, near Fallujah, at the crossing of the Euphrates. The other half had moved westward to block the road near Ramadi. The airbase was safe for the moment, but both roads to it were under Iraqi control. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Churchill praised Air Vice Marshal Smart for his defense of the airbase and promised all available help. Yet the word available should have had a battle-sized ship asterisk next to it. Wavell offered up his opinion again that there were not enough forces available and diplomacy should be used, if only to buy time. London and it wasn't just Churchill this time, overrode this view, and so the CNC was ordered to use parts of the 1st Cavalry Division as a relief force. All they had to do was cross the 300 miles or so from Palestine, in the desert heat that was 120 degrees Fahrenheit, in the shade. Yet Hab Force, its logical name, set out, rushing east as fast as the elements would let them. It should be mentioned that Habforce, thrown together from what could be spared, which was basically nothing, had no tanks, no armored cars, no anti-tank weapons, nor anti-air weapons. That last detail was about to play a vital role. Crossing into Iraq on May 13th, when Habforce was near Rutba, about 150 miles west of the airfield, 
German aircraft coming in from Syria strafed the column. And as the relief force closed in on Habania on May 18th, they were attacked again from the air. It seems that the Vichy government, at least in Syria, was not adhering to its promises to Britain. However, as scary as these attacks may have been on the relatively weak half-force, German forces were doing all they could just to muster these two attacks. The way things stood at the moment, German units could only be brought in by air, which meant that if there had been any sizable German combatants in-country, they would have been bombed daily. After all, those RAF pilots were in training. So, instead, the Axis had to settle for only using 14 fighters and 7 bombers to fulfill the promises German agents had made to Rashid Ali, which was not enough, as the RAF aircraft continuously bombed Iraqi infrastructure with impunity. Local sentiment was starting to turn back to the seemingly powerful British Empire. But now that Habforce was at the airfield, they had been able to chase away the Iraqi roadblock, but they reassembled after Habforce went by. The next part of their mission was to head for Baghdad and chase away those supporters of the new government. Yet Iraqi forces still blocked the road at the bridge over the Euphrates, about 10 miles west of the capital. And this group would probably be less likely to scatter. Yet, when Colonel Overy Roberts was asked which roadblock would he attack first now that he was reinforced, he answered, both. Roberts had detailed reconnaissance done of both forces and commenced simultaneous attacks on May 19th. He might not have had tanks, but he did have at least 57 aircraft, and though the majority of these were obsolete, they did the job on the Iraqi forces on either side of the airfield. The bridge at Fallujah was taken intact that day, and after regrouping, Hop Force started for the capital on May 27th. Rashid Ali and his supporters offered up what resistance they could, which crumbled relatively quickly. But this gave the leadership just enough time to escape to Persia. May 30th saw the return of the pro-British regent to Baghdad. This series of events was good for all concerned, except for Ali, the Germans, and Wavell. He had been proven wrong. The scratched-together force, showing pluck, had righted the situation quick-smart. Another feather fell from the man's cap. Of course, the Iraqis were no Germans, but that detail seemed to escape those in London. Syria The Germans weren't any more ready to support anti-British activities in Syria than they had been in Iraq. Having said that, the British weren't any more ready to attack those forces within Syria should they not adhere to the Franco-German armistice agreement than they had been in Iraq before the arrival of Habforce. Yet it seemed that the French High Commissioner, General Dentz, was allowing himself to be persuaded by the German influences there. It was Iraq all over again, except if Vichy decided to go to war, that could be a game-changer. It didn't help London any to see things clearly, having the Free French, namely de Gaulle and other Free French leaders, not only pressuring the British to take Syria before the Germans did, 
but also outright lying to London about the pro-Allied sentiment within Syria. Still, Churchill reacted as expected by sending a message to Abel asking him what could be done and what forces were to hand as touching Syria. I'm sure the CNC Middle East probably just wanted to take his last communique about trying to deal with Rommel, having just dealt with East Africa and Iraq and Greece, and stating he did not have what London must have thought he had, and just changed the date before sending it off. He had, after all, just used up his last uncommitted reserves for Habforce, and now his Prime Minister and the Chiefs of Staff wanted another front. And if there was to be a force gathered or another front, the CNC of the Air Force made it clear he did not have the aircraft to cover this adventure. Not that that mattered. So, throughout the first part of May, the level of intensity of the messages between Alexandria and London steadily rose. Wavell tried to point out that having free French troops now gathering in Palestine, but not under his authority, involved in a Syrian operation, was guaranteed to push General Dentz to the German side. Why didn't London see that? It didn't get any better when Wavell sent a cable on May 17th that read in part, Hope I shall not be landed with Syria commitment unless absolutely essential. And the truth was, it was not essential. It would not affect the war in North Africa. Besides which, the Germans, whatever they had up their sleeve post-Greece, it didn't involve the Middle East. Rommel wasn't even getting what he wanted, had, in fact, been told to stand down. Syria was not going to see a rush of German soldiers anytime soon. Yet this did not matter to those in London that mattered. This resistance tipped the scale as far as Churchill was concerned. Two days later, the Prime Minister gathered the chiefs of the General Staff to Downing Street and told them he intended to replace Wavell, who would be sent to Auchinleck's job, C&C of India. But Winston could not rid himself of Wavell yet. The man was too popular at home. The politician would have to bide his time. But for now, Wavell was overridden again. Syria would be invaded by British and Free French troops in early June. It was to be called Exporter, led by General Jumbo Wilson, just returned from Greece, and Wavell was ordered to give Wilson what he needed from those forces that had just arrived at Alexandria. Battleaxe had not yet launched, but was already being blunted. Crete. As of April 29, 1941, the Commonwealth forces of the United Kingdom were no longer actively resisting German forces on the Greek mainland. By this point, any and all remaining Allied non-captured soldiers were trying to find their way to Crete, by hook or by crook. Hitler let his German underlings, as well as the Italians, worry about the administrative side of the newly conquered country. He went back to his maps of Western Russia. Before war broke out, Britain knew that in contesting the Mediterranean, a midpoint would be needed between the all-important Malta, they assumed Italy would not be on their side, and Alexandria. And Suda Bay, on Creek's northern shore on the western side, was all but ideal for this. Crete is 40 miles across at its widest part, and 160 miles long. 
It has one road that connects all of its northern cities, ports, and airfields. To the north, its mountains slope gradually. To the south, they are much steeper. Still, it would take a massive reconstruction of Suda-based facilities to allow it to handle larger warships. And from November 1940 until April of 1941, although there was talk of it, no such work was undertaken. There were simply too many other important projects for the Allies, as they played catch-up to the Germans in their roles as aggressor. Crete's other major port, Heraklion, again to the north, was more in the center and thus did not serve as well as Suda, where ships could just come along the western edge, refuel, and then head south for Alexandria. No railroads were laying. Crete had none. Communications, telegraphs, and phones were basic at best, and none of these were improved. Between the French and British military, it was decided that if war came, the French would send units from Syria to safeguard Crete. But as France was quickly knocked out of the war, and Vichy had no choice but to remain neutral per their agreement with Germany, Britain would have to make do on their own. The best plan to defend Crete seemed to be to have well-armed and equipped units centered around the main parts of the island and impressive communication and transportation established. That way, the one road in the north could be used to move men about to threatened areas and well-developed communication that would allow those units, separated by geography, to raise an alarm in time. Yet, as one may guess, with losing massive amounts of material at Dunkirk and then again throughout southern Greece, the British were anything but material-heavy. The men ferried to Crete had in their hands to offer resistance what they were able to carry or allowed to carry. What's more, their transport vehicles were all back on the Greek mainland, destroyed. On April 17th, Air Chief Marshal Longmore commented to Wavell that he had just read a telegram between the CNC Middle East and the Prime Minister that stated Crete was to be held. This was the first he was hearing of it. What's more, as far as he knew, the Chiefs of Staff, nor any of the CNCs, had worked out a clear plan on how to defend the island. Everyone just knew Crete was important. This did not bode well. Adding to the confusion of priorities, just exactly how important was Crete? The commanding Mediterranean officer, Admiral Cunningham, had been told on April 16th that his number one priority was to stop all shipments to Rommel from Italy. So, collectively, the CNCs asked London what were the priorities for the following assignments. Tripoli was to be blockaded, Malta supplied, Tobruk supplied, Operation Tiger was currently being chaperoned, and the evacuation of all troops from Greece. The coastline of the western desert still had to be covered, Crete protected, and now Iraq and Syria were on London's radar. Could London please put a number in descending order next to each of these? Churchill, it must be said, put his pen where his mouth was. The next day, on April 18th, the Chiefs of Staff wired his response. The CNCs in the combat areas were to prioritize the evacuation of Greece and the war in North Africa. If there had to be a choice between these two, well, North Africa was more important. The Prime Minister then went on to say that those Commonwealth forces from Greece could just be dumped onto Crete 
if they couldn't make it to Alexandria. The organization of its defenses could be determined later, assuming the Germans were going to let them have that time, of course. Crete was mentioned last. The wording went like this. Subject to the above general remarks, victory in Libya counts first. Evacuation of troops from Greece, second. Tobruk shipping, unless indispensable to victory, must be fitted in as convenient. Iraq can be ignored, and Crete worked up later. Again, if the Germans were kind enough to allow a later. But then, all hell broke loose in Greece, and Crete, being so low on the list, wasn't exactly in a position to receive massive amounts of food, men, or large guns. The 14th Brigade of the 6th British Division, which had been on Crete since November, was joined by an anti-air regiment, two coastal defense batteries, and some Royal Marine detachments, just before the Germans struck in the north. These units, plus what came over from Greece, once the battle was over, were the forces on the spot. They would have to do the job. But all told, the forces not from Greece did not even amount to a battalion, and those forces from Greece were just bringing whatever weapons they had. The defense of Crete would be fought by these men, as well as 32 heavy guns, 36 light guns, and 24 searchlights. General Wilson arrived at Suda Bay from Greece on April 27th. Waiting there for him was a question from Wavell. What was needed to hold Crete? But before you answer, keep in mind, there will be no increase in aircraft. In fact, you might not have any. Wilson knew that his air umbrella would be flying in from Egypt, whereas German aircraft were just minutes away, taking off from southern Greece. It was a no contest concerning the coming air war. Wilson, not one for wasting time, words, or known for sparing the feelings of others, replied that, If the Germans sent in airborne troops and landed additional men from the sea, it couldn't be done. If it was just airborne troops, then Crete would need three brigade groups, but each one had to have its full four battalions. This, plus a motor battalion of the MNBDO, or Mobile Naval Base Defense Organization, whose job was to provide anti-air support to temporary harbors, might get the job done. But then as there was expected to be little or no air cover, this was Wilson's way of saying Crete could not be defended. Wavell flew into the lion's mouth by landing on Crete on April 30th. He cleared up the matter. Crete was going to be held, if only so the Axis could not use it as an air base to hit Egypt. It was bad enough that they now held Cyrenaica. What's more, the CNC wanted the New Zealander General Freiburg to command the defensive forces, such as they were. As for Wilson, he was on his way to the Middle East, Palestine specifically, to deal with the enemies in Iraq and Syria. Freiburg would do his bit, of course, but felt compelled to tell his superior and his own government that without adequate troops, that they were just all delaying the inevitable. By now, everyone believed that an air assault was coming. The paramount question was, how many Germans would be dropping from the sky? Wavell verbally waved all these questions away by saying London had already decided. 
Crete was to be kept out of the hands of the Axis. Admiral Cunningham would do his part as for any amphibious landings, but the CNC then conceded the lack of appropriate air power. While this was going on, the New Zealand government, sensing the dread from their General Freiburg, contacted the Prime Minister about their misgivings. Churchill replied on May 3rd that he doubted a seaborne attack would be tried, and if it was, it would probably fail. As for an airborne attack, why, the Commonwealth forces should hope for that. The enemy would not have their panzers and heavy guns. Our boys would be able to get at them. Besides, help was haltingly on the way. In another month or two, Crete would become unobtainable for the Germans. For the next few weeks, the number of RA aircraft on the island dwindled, trying to take on the larger enemy forces coming from Greece. By the end of the second week of May, even the rawest recruit could see that, if the Germans came, the four remaining hurricanes and three gladiators would not even be a speed bump for the German wave of fighters who would be supporting the airborne troops. The higher-ups agreed. On May 19th, the last seven planes were told to leave the island. Still, Egyptian-based bombers did what damage they could to the German air facilities in southern Greece. Yet, they were coming from 300 miles away. The very definition of too little, too late. Right after the attack of Greece and Allied resistance was viewed as broken, General Kurt Student, practically the creator and force behind Nazi Germany's airborne forces, rushed to Hitler to propose that his men be allowed to capture Crete. His argument was simple. His method had worked at the Belgian fort Ibn Amal and a few of their bridges. It would work here. For Hitler's part, he remembered the high casualty rates from those attacks. After all, the men were practically helpless as they floated down to their objectives. Yet Gehring was for it. The German Navy was for it. Because to them, Crete was the first of several stepping stones. Then Cyprus, then to the very edge of the eastern Mediterranean. Yet Hitler's generals were mostly against taking the island. But Hitler didn't value their opinion all that much anymore. But why the Nazi warlord said yes to student had to do with Russia. If Crete could be taken, it would hopefully draw the eyes of Moscow away from their border with Germany. Hitler could say, you see, this buildup you perceive with suspicion is because we are taking Crete and then Malta and then Syria. He even suggested to Moscow his buildup of massive forces in the east was in preparation for an invasion of Britain. Such was his desperation to get the Russian bear to lower his guard. The fact that a German-controlled Crete would mean the British were that much further away from his Ploesti oil fields was probably the last straw that tilted the balance. Yet, as Student presented his case, Hitler focused on the negatives. The shock troops would be relying on the slower Ju-52. For various reasons, the jumps would have to be made just under 400 feet, which meant the slower aircraft would be vulnerable to anti-air fire. What's more, it bothered him that the airborne troops would have their heavier weapons dropped separately in crates and thus would have to collect them. Wasted time. Certainly considering the need to land, organize, and hit various targets. But for the ranking Nazi, 
it all came back to Russia. This was the smokescreen Hitler had been looking for. So, Directive 28, or Operation Mercury, his code name for the assault on Crete, was ordered on April 25th. Yet Hitler then took it one step further. Now that it was decided, Hitler needed it over ASAP. Nothing could be allowed to interfere with Barbarossa. So he told student, I will be taking those transports when I need them for Russia. Period. Quote, every day earlier is a profit. Every day later is a loss. Unquote. But really, Crete held no interest for the man. His eyes and passion were elsewhere. Which is why, besides Salonika, Greece had been handed over to the Italians. Having gotten what he wanted from Hitler, Student allowed himself to believe that he would be in charge of this operation. But it was not to be. He would share the responsibility with General Richthofen under General Lohr's 4th Air Fleet and those standing beside Student who genuinely believed this was the future of warfare. They only saw this operation as hurting Barbarossa. The German plan of attack and then occupation was straightforward. The attacking forces, like the island itself, was divided up into three groups. The center group, called Mars, would be led by Major General Sussman, and he would have at his disposal the majority of the 7th Air Division. The forces landing in the east, led by General Brower, codenamed Orion, was manned by one parachute regiment and one mountain regiment. That left the group labeled Comet, attacking a specific section in the western half led by Major General Mendel, and was comprised of a glider-borne assault regiment. So again, looking at Crete from above, going left to right, Comet, Mars, Orion. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. But to drill down just a bit, Comet's objective was to take the all-important airfield at Malime, then link up with the forces of Mars on the Kenia Road. The men of Mars were to land just south of Kenia, take out the defenders in the area of Galata and on the edge of Suda. A smaller part of Mars was to land further east, take the airfield and town of Retitmo, and then move west to join up with those around Suda. Another small part of Mars was to land and dominate the area to the southeast of Kenia, and then link up with everyone else in the west. Suda would thus be cut off, surrounded by land, and Kenia would be attacked from various directions, unable to defend itself. Orion's objective was the airfield and town of Heraklion. In his enthusiasm, Student believed, hoped, 
that by the end of the first day, the three airfields, Melima, Retitmo, and Heraklion, would be under their control, as well as the three important towns of Kania, Retitmo, and Heraklion. And if this did come to pass, then planes carrying troops from the 5th Mountain Division could be landed on day two. These men, using heavier guns from ships disembarking their goods at Melime and Heraklion, could then march on Suda. A third day was allotted for mopping up and the intangibles of war. Such was the plan mostly devised by General Student. But even before the first German boot hit the ground, the invasion was ordained not to unfold, as predicted. And that was because the Germans, like so many before them, and after, were basing their execution of Operation Mercury on faulty intelligence. The Germans believed that Crete was being defended by only 5,000 men. It was closer to 27,000 men. After all, some 20,000 men had just left Greece. They believed that Retimo was completely devoid of Greek or Allied troops. They believed that only 400 soldiers stood in between them and Heraklion. And incredibly, they believed that the Cretans would actually be welcoming this as a liberation force. After all, didn't they despise the former Prime Minister, Metexas? Perhaps, but they certainly felt stronger, in a negative way, about those who had just invaded Greece, taken prisoners, and killed many. Military thinking is not much immune from wishful thinking. And those other commanders, besides Student, who only wanted this over so they could get back to Russia and the glory that awaited them, advised the airborne leader to concentrate his forces. It was far more preferable to land, hold, and then advance, as opposed to scattering your men, getting attacked piecemeal, and then fighting just to bring them together for security's sake. But Student got his way. Besides, hitting all these targets on the first day would shorten the war, and isn't that what they wanted, what Hitler wanted? By May 14th, some 500 tri-motor and relatively slow Ju-52s were ready for their part of the operation. Those German soldiers taking part started leaving their posts, crossed into Bulgaria and down the Aegean coast. The Commonwealth forces had done a respectable job of destroying the Greek roads as they had retreated, so locals were forced to make repairs by the Axis soldiers. Still, it wasn't enough, and the 2.5 million gallons of fuel for the Junkers had to be brought in by sea. This caused the delay of Operation Mercury until May 20th. Epilogue. The role of General Freiburg in the fall of Crete has been in contention from the moment the war was over, if not earlier. So we might as well jump in too. On May 10th, Churchill decided that Freiburg should be allowed to read the contents of the German plan of attack, as gathered by Ultra, but it was made clear to him he was not to share the source of information with anyone. What's more, he could not act on the information if Ultra was his only source. But here's where it gets confusing. The next day, May 11th, Freiburg started receiving this information. He was told that the primary targets would be the airfields at Melime, Retitmo, and Heraklion. Secondary would be the harbor of Suda Bay and Heraklion Port. These ports would allow the enemy to land heavy equipment, 
but this was only after the airfields were taken. Also, additional troops would be landed once the airfields were under their control. The heavy guns were nothing without the men to use them. Yet for all this, Freiburg seemed to still believe that the main threat would come from the sea, and with this in mind, he made his defensive preparations. The island was to be divided into four parts. The area around Heraklion would be protected by the second Black Watch, an Australian battalion, two British battalions, three Greek battalions, and additional gunners, all under the command of Brigadier Chapel. This was Crete's best air facility. If the Germans wanted to land troops during the second phase of its attack, they would come here. The area around Retitmo would have men placed at the town and at the airstrip, but not all the way around both, like at Heraklion. There, an Australian commanding officer, Vassy, would have two Australian battalions and three Greek battalions. They would all be focused on the airstrip. Local police and army reserves would protect the town. As for Suda Bay itself, stationed there would be units from the 1st Welsh, two Greek battalions, and parts of the Mobile Naval Base Defense Organization. At Melime, which had its own airfield in the northwest, were some 3,500 Greek troops, yet many of them did not have guns. Also, there were RAF personnel stationed there, but no one expected them to fight like trained infantry. This left the 5th New Zealand and three Greek battalions in a defensive role, acting as mobile reserves to deal with any contested area that got out of control was the 1st Welsh, already mentioned, and the 4th New Zealand Brigade. But the real problem people have with Freiburg is because of what happened at Malime Airfield in the northwest. The airstrip along the northern coast was being protected by the New Zealand 22nd Battalion stationed on Hill 107, just to the south of the airfield. The 22nd was being supported by another battalion, but they were two miles to the east along the coast road. The idea was to call on them, if needed, when the Germans came, either by air or by sea. Yet the phone system was delicate at best, and so a flare could be used to call for help when it was needed. So picture the following in the northwest corner of Crete. You have the airfield along the northern coast, west of Suda Bay, and right below the airfield is Hill 107. Just touching the airfield to its west or left is a dry riverbed of the Tavrontius River, and just to the left or west of that is open territory, a perfect spot for airborne troops to land and gather. If the Germans landed here, there would be nothing to stop them from walking straight onto the airfield. Now, further to the west of that open field, at Castelli Casamos, was where the 1st Greek Regiment was stationed. But if the Germans landed to the left of the riverbed, they would land unopposed, in between the Greeks and Hill 107. After the war, Freiburg stated that he had wanted, and had ordered, that the 5th New Zealand Brigade be stationed to the west of the riverbed, and for the 1st Greek Regiment to be pulled back, thereby covering the western flank of this all-important airfield. But, he claims, Wavell would not let him move the troops, as it would be obvious to the Germans that the British had known where they were coming with their attack. Ultra could not be compromised. 
even to save Crete. One obvious solution would have been to have the troops ready and then overwhelm the area once the Germans had landed, so it would seem that the British were just reacting to an established threat. But this was not carried out. To make this sorrowful tale even more sad, another possible solution could have been, even if the Germans did take the airfield, why not make all the airfields unusable? The Anzac forces had done a respectable job on the Greek roads when retreating south. And, in fact, the captain of the New Zealand 5th Brigade had 300 mines to use for something just like this. Yet the Chiefs of Staff firmly believed that this undertaking could not be completed in time, and that the units on the ground did not have the material with which to prepare the airfield. But they did, and were ready, but were not given the order. Besides which, it was stated by more than a few officers after the war that certain high-ranking officials of the Middle East theater wanted the airfields intact, to either help with defending Crete once the Germans were repulsed, or to serve as a stopover for flights heading to Syria or Iraq. This, of course, staggers the imagination when the defenders of Crete had no air force to speak of. Why leave the airfields operational? The only aircraft operating in the area were German. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I just want to say thank you to a couple people, uh, make an audible recommendation, and then we'll do the drawing for the uh, four Nazi coins that I have. So, first of all, I would just like to thank Ross Minton from the UK, who sent me the British care package. His was the one, the story that I told last time about my, my wife uh, thinking it was something else um, smeared all over it. So anyway, so Ross, I will give you details about that later. I'm still going through it. And again, just thank you very much. It, it means more to me th than I can say. Uh, as far as my new members, I'd like to, to welcome aboard William N. from Prospect, Kentucky. Thank you. Matt D. from Pembroke Pine, Florida, which is where I wish I was at right now. Uh, Eric H., thank you very much. And Ryan T. from Wilmar, uh, Minnesota. And Jive Nation from London in the UK. Uh, as far as people who bought mugs, I'd like to thank William Ald. He, um, he bought a, a Churchill mug as far as, and also Alex H., who bought my new mug of Winston's quote, if you're going through hell, keep going. And you can see pictures of that um, on Facebook, and I'll be putting them on the website soon. And um, let's see, Alex is from Fitchburg, Wisconsin. So thank you very much. As far as donations, uh, Brett G. from Eugene, Oregon. Thank you very much, Brett. Jesse S. from Brooklyn, New York. Thank you. Uh, I was so tempted to go Brooklyn, but uh, it probably comes across as crazy. Um, and then there's uh, Michael Kerr from Epping, New South Wales in Australia. Michael, I might have mentioned you last time, but I just wanted to make sure. So thank you to everyone who's donated, become a member, bought a mug. I've got a whole bunch of different mugs coming out. And I've also got the uh, travel mugs now. Again, you can see pictures of those on Facebook, and I will be putting them on the website when I can get in touch with um, Paul, who is a very busy man in Scotland. I think he's running the country now. Please don't forget to check out my sponsor, lynda.com, and there's a link on my website. It's at the very top. Thank you very much for that. I certainly do appreciate it. As far as my um, audible recommendation, I'd like to go in a slightly different direction, go in the past a little bit. The book is called Night Raid, The True Story of the First Victorious British Para Raid of World War II by Taylor Downing. 
So by uh, mid-1941, the British bomber command are just losing a lot of bombers uh, being shot down over Germany and France, and they finally figure out that Germany has some type of radar. It might be primitive, I don't know. they got to figure it all out. But they decide to send a raiding force over there who they practice a lot and they have a lot of failures. But they do eventually get over there and are able to disassemble it and bring it back, and they take it apart, and they learn a lot of things about what they were dealing with with the British. So it's a very exciting story. It moves, it moves pretty quickly. And again, it's called Night Raid, the true story of the first victorious British para raid of World War II by Taylor Downing. Check it out on Audible. But please, obviously, go through my website so I can get credit for it at worldwar2podcast.net. Okay, everyone, so here is the coin contest that I promised to do late in December. Sorry about that. So thank you for everybody who's uh, entered. The way it's going to work is I have three uh, Third Reich Reichsfending coins uh, made from 1939, 1938, 1937, and then a two coin, um, I think, made from the same time. And I'll, we'll just draw four names. Those people will, um, will win the coins, and what I'm going to do is just randomly pick one of the four winners and uh, send a mug along with it. So, uh, good luck, everybody. So, who would like to draw a name first? I will. All right. There you are. Thank you. Okay. So, Barbara B. has won the first coin. Barbara, I will be... Um, I will be um, contacting you uh, through email to let you know, and I'll get your address, and you can send it to me. So thank you, Barbara. Okay, who's next? Uh-huh. Thank you, Sophie. All right. Thank you. Would you like to say hi? Hi. There you go. <laughs> She's hiding under the table. Okay, Kendrick Six is the second winner. Good. Congratulations, Kendrick. All right, thank you very much. As our second winner. I'll be contacting you, Kendrick Six. Whose turn is it? Kiki? Okay, she's stirring the pot. Would you like to say anything about monkeys while we're here? Okay. She really likes monkeys. Okay, Matt D. Zurich? Matt D. Zurich. <laughs> Sorry about that. I will be, congratulations, Matt. I'll be contacting you and uh, letting you know you've won. Get your address. Whose turn is it? My turn. Okay, the last one. Try not to look. Let's see here. And the last winner of the Nazi coin contest is Jonathan Platt. Plant. So congratulations, Jonathan. I will um, contact you as soon as I can, get your details. And like I said, one of you is also going to win a uh, Churchill mug. Hooray! Well, get my okay. burp. <laughs> I will edit out that burp. Okay, so thank you everyone for participating. Um, I'll do something again in a couple of months if I can come up with something worthy to give away. Are you going to talk to your cookie for doing that? So anyway, thank you, and I uh, hope you enjoyed episode 118. <sighs>